Imagine studying an LSAT curriculum designed just for you. This is LSAT Boss. LSAT Boss the Class is an advanced learner-centered curriculum available now on Teachable. It's to be completed at your own pace and processing speed, and it's designed and taught by me, Shauna Ginsberg, the founder of Ginsberg Advanced Tutoring and the host of the LSAT Boss podcast. Our curriculum includes lessons that build towards an advanced understanding of logical reasoning, reading comprehension, and analytical reasoning, homework assignments that require you to master concepts before moving on to the next one, strategies that teach you the economics behind test day decision making, especially when stuck between two answer choices, and anxiety management techniques that teach you how to regain your mental clarity under timed pressure. I'm bringing you the entire curriculum in a set of 33 interactive videos, a convenient and affordable online format that you can use to study anywhere. So what are you waiting for? Get started today at Ginsburg-Advanced-Tutoring.Teachable.com. That's Ginsburg-Advanced-Tutoring.Teachable.com. Hi, welcome to LSAT Boss. I'm your host, Shauna Ginsburg. This is Season 1, Episode 5, and today we'll be covering the second part of our inductive arguments lesson. We'll be talking about arguments by analogy and data sampling arguments. I want to take a minute to thank everyone who's been listening so far. Your feedback has been incredible. We appreciate the reviews. We've been doing our best to improve on our end, not only with some clarity in the structure of our episodes, but also with our technology. We've got a really nice microphone, nice pop filter set up, good software for recording this episode. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, please feel free to leave a review and let us know how we're doing. Um, you can always contact us uh, at hello at ginsburgadvancedtutoring.com and let us know what you think of the show or anything that you think we can do to improve it. So without further ado, let's get started with arguments by analogy. So arguments by analogy or analogical arguments, they've got a really important word contained in there. It's analogy, which you know about. You've probably learned about analogies in elementary school or middle school. Uh, sometimes we had, way back in elementary school, these uh, analogy word problems, which would say, like, finger is to hand as toe is to what? And so you had to think about the relationship between the finger and the hand and make an analogous relationship between a toe and, you guessed it, the foot. So obviously, LSAT arguments by analogy are not going to be that easy, but not to worry, they're not that frequent either. You're definitely going to see causal arguments more than anything else. But let's talk about these arguments by analogy. By definition, you can consider an argument by analogy as one that compares two concepts, ideas, or objects and indicates the similarity between them. I like to think about arguments by analogy really in terms of their assumptions, because anytime, oh, we have a visitor. Olive, my 18-month Aussie doodle, has joined us. She has been studying the LSAT, truth be told, since she was about eight weeks old. She sits right at my feet. She has been guiding hundreds of students at this point. I think she's smarter than all of us. I think she's probably done a good 500 to 1,000 hours of LSAT prep today. 
So thank you for coming in and joining us. We're happy to have you, Olive. Please take a seat. All right, so back to this argument by analogy. I mentioned the assumption as being really critical. So the assumption for an argument by analogy is that two things, groups, or ideas are similar with respect to the term of the argument. And that's really important to think about, that similar with respect to the term of the argument. It's got two components. There's the similarity, and then there's with respect to the term of the argument. Now, the term of the argument is going to be what you're going to have to be analyzing in an argument by analogy. It's easy enough to figure out the two groups that are being compared. Oftentimes, you have one group that's mentioned in a premise, and then we reach a conclusion about another group in the conclusion, and that's a telltale sign that you're dealing with an argument by analogy structure. Let's talk about an example so that we can really get a good LSAT example of argument by analogy beyond my hand-foot one. So suppose I told you that five-year-olds become very anxious in overcrowded situations. And then I concluded that, therefore, high school students are likely to become anxious in overcrowded situations as well. Well, that is an argument by analogy. How do I know? Well, let's talk about what it didn't do. It didn't create a cause and effect relationship. It's not because young kids act anxious or become anxious in overcrowded situations that old, older students do. That's not the relationship here. Older students might become anxious in overcrowded situations because of neurological reasons, uh, because of uh, genetic reasons, because of environmental reasons, but they're not, it's likely not the case that the reason why the older students are becoming anxious is because the younger students are, right? So it's not a causal argument. It's an argument by analogy because what we would have to assume to make this, this argument hold true is that these two groups, young children and older children, are similar with respect to, and this is that second part that I said was so important. We've got the two groups, right? The young children and older children, but they're similar with respect to becoming anxious in overcrowded situations. It has to be the assumption of the argument. It has to be the unstated premise that connects this whole thing because what if it were the case that young kids and older children didn't both become anxious in overcrowded situations? Well, how could we conclude then that the older students would become anxious too? The whole conclusion would fall apart. And that is an argument by analogy. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Shauna, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about our lecture notes that are available at our website. Many of our students have learning disabilities and learning challenges that make it difficult to focus on audio while taking notes at the same time. We also work with students who might listen to audio but not necessarily retain everything that they heard. Well, in that case, our lecture notes might be just for you. Head to www.ginsburgadvancedtutoring.com and download the lecture notes from our LSAT Boss podcast that you're listening to. There'll be complete notes that you can then turn into flashcards or do what we call the echo method on where you can read one line of the notes at a time, echo it out loud to yourself, and then return to the 
notes and check and make sure that you echoed it accurately. Check out our lecture notes and all of our products and services that are available for you for the LSAT at www.ginsburgadvancedtutoring.com. We're back with the second part of today's episode. Now we'll be moving into inductive generalizations, which is a fancy formal logic name for data and sampling arguments. Data and sampling arguments argue from empirical evidence about a subset of a given population. That sounds like a mouthful. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Inductive generalizations are general ideas or conclusions that derive from evidence that's been taken from a sample of a population. An inductive generalization is successful as an argument when the size of the sample and the gathering of the data is without human error and the sample itself is representative of the whole it seeks to generalize. And a note about data sampling and studies, we don't generally think about at the heart of a survey whether or not a control group was used. But one of the things that we find in the logical reasoning section is that not only are we going to be looking at these data sampling arguments as what's the sample, what population is it representative of, and is the general conclusion representative of the whole. But we're also taking a look at the control group and how the study was actually put together. For example, if you're looking at the relative benefits of coffee versus tea, it wouldn't be an appropriate study to give one group coffee, the other group tea, and to see which one is more I don't know, awake by 3 p.m. off of uh, two ounces of caffeine. That wouldn't be good. The reason why, if you remember way back when, when you first learned about data and statistics, is that you'd want to give that two ounces of caffeine to the coffee drinkers and then compare them to a group that didn't have any caffeine at all. So caffeine versus nothing, I should say coffee versus nothing, and then another study done of tea versus nothing, and then compare which one had the added or the greater you know, caffeine benefit boost, the coffee or the tea. So when we're thinking about inductive generalizations, these arguments have a few key parts. We wanna make sure that we're comfortable with the terms of these parts so that we go looking for them when we're reading the arguments. So first there's the sample. Um, that's the members of the given population that are being observed in the study. If I am doing a study of um, all college-age lacrosse players to determine what social media platform they prefer, and I determined that 75% of all college-age lacrosse players prefer Snapchat, the sample or the uh, members of the population are the college-age lacrosse players. The sample size, well, let's say I selected uh, college-age lacrosse players from one school and I was reaching a conclusion from there. Well, if it's not a flawed argument, I can't say that the size is too small. If it is a flawed argument, I'd say, hmm, I don't know. Is that too big, too small? It's worth thinking about the sample size because it's one of the basic components of a data sampling argument. And then we take a look at the sample representativeness. Was the analysis of only college-age lacrosse players sufficient to reach a conclusion about, say, all college-age students 
or I should say, all college-age individuals and what their social media preference is. If from 75%, um, a, a survey that says 75% of all college-age lacrosse players prefer Snapchat, and from that I conclude that all college-age individuals prefer Snapchat, I, if it's a flawed question, I'm going to question this representativeness because only college-age lacrosse players seems unrepresentative of college students, let alone college students and college-age students who might not necessarily be attending college. Finally, we also want to take a look at the population, which is the generalized group that's described in the conclusion. In the example I just gave, the population as a whole that we're looking at is all college-age individuals. Right? That's not the sample. That's the population. The sample is the lacrosse players. The population is all college-age individuals. And then finally, the last thing we're looking at is the property. And the property is the feature that is being measured in the premise. The feature that's being measured here, if you recall, was which social media platform do those students prefer. And so the feature is the social media platform that's it. That's the data sampling argument. They're not super challenging. It's just that we have to make sure that we're seeing the key words in the argument that then trigger in our brain, oh, this is a data sampling argument. Let me treat it that way. Or we see words like similar or analogous, and we go, oh, this is an argument by analogy. Let me make sure I analyze it that way. So to sum up what we've talked about today, arguments by analogy are defined by their perceived similarities between two groups or ideas that are then used as a basis to infer some further similarity that's yet to be observed. A sampling argument starts with a sample, a study, a survey, or experiment, and is characterized by a small group taken by some method from a larger population and is also characterized by an attempt to persuade the reader that a characteristic of that sample is a feature of the larger general population. So we will end today with uh, a quick example. We'll do a sampling argument example here. Suppose a study of two groups, one who brushed their teeth twice a day and the other who brushed their teeth once a day, revealed the participants developed the same number of cavities regardless of how much they brushed. Therefore, brushing more frequently does not prevent cavities. Okay, let's start our analysis on this one by first asking, did you pick up on what the conclusion was on that one? We're going to be talking about conclusions in the next lesson, but that therefore word was a telltale sign that what came after it was a conclusion. Therefore, brushing more frequently does not prevent cavities. And there isn't another conclusion in this argument, so that would make it the overall conclusion. How do we know that brushing more frequently does not prevent cavities? Well, we take a look at the premise and we analyze those parts that we've talked about today. What's the sample? Seems to be two groups, those who brush their teeth twice a day, the other who brush their teeth once a day. We don't know how the study was conducted, but we did note what the property was, that thing that's being analyzed and surveyed. It was about brushing and the rate of cavities, right? That's what we were tracking, that property. 
Later on, when we get into assumptions, we're going to know that the assumption here is that this, however the sample was uh, gathered, however this survey was conducted, it was done without human error, without bias, and there definitely had to be a control group. So I don't know if we're necessarily taking the once a, t once a day versus twice a day folks and putting them side by side because we got to make sure there's a control. But you know what? I'm just an attorney. I'm not a scientist. If you tell me it's flawed, I'm going to go to the fundamental flaws and I'm going to attack it there. If you tell me it's not flawed, I'm going to say then the sample is representative of the general population. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to download the lecture notes from today's episode so that you can make sure you retain all the information that you need to know about arguments by analogy and the uh, sampling arguments as well. Can't leave without homework. For homework, what I recommend that you do is if you download the lecture notes, there's going to be an inductive arguments chart in there. I'd like you to memorize the definitions of the three different argument types that we've talked about today. You're also going to find in there definitions of the parts of the argument, the premise, the conclusion, and the assumption. So I want you to memorize those definitions too. You can do that with flashcards or the echo method or whatever your preferred study method is. That's it for today's LSAT boss. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next time with more logical reasoning.